Before we get started, just a quick heads up that registration is now open for the American Craft Spirits Association's annual Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show in Louisville, Kentucky, this December 4th through 6th. To sign up and take advantage of early bird pricing, head to AmericanCraftSpirits.org. You'll also want to head to the website if you make whiskey, because registration is also open for the third biennial Heartland Whiskey Competition which is generously sponsored by State Corn Association Marketing Boards and is open to craft whiskeys from all 50 states that incorporate corn in their mash bill. Again, that's AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Thanks. So maybe we want to have a family business. And we also thought about the importance of family in general, particularly in starting our own, that it would be nice to be close to family. And my parents lived in Chicago. I had always been trying to get back to Chicago. Uh, I guess whiskey became my ruby slippers. And so we really just decided uh, that uh, we would go with what was most important to us in our hearts, which was working together, being in a city we loved, and being close to family. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Sweet Home Chicago. Our guest today is Sonnet Bernecker Hart, owner and president of Koval Distillery. Vowing to make organic spirits from scratch, Sonnet and her husband Robert Bernecker left academic careers to establish Koval in Chicago in 2008. Today, the distillery's products are available across the nation and in 55 export markets, and Sonnet spearheads product development, distribution, and marketing. She recently joined Jeff Cialetti for a wide-ranging conversation, which includes her thoughts on how starting up the distillery during the subprime mortgage crisis helped Koval navigate the pandemic. They also go beyond Koval's whiskey and gin to discuss liqueurs and brandy. To kick things off, Jeff asked Sonnet for a nutshell description of the road to starting Koval. You know, it wasn't uh, what you'd normally think. Uh, you know, I was a tenured professor, had a completely different, uh, you know, career path, so to speak. But uh, my husband and I were at a life uh, sort of changing moment, which is when you're about to have a child and you start thinking about your future and what that's going to mean. And uh, particularly with regard to a family and we were house hunting, um, you know, in the D.C. area and had saved about $30,000 for a down payment on a home. And after seeing a number of homes, and this was right before the crash in 2008, so 2007, home prices were incredibly high. And after seeing, you know, a number of homes that, you know, just, I don't know, they didn't make us particularly excited, we started thinking, well, maybe we don't want to settle down here. Maybe we want something else for our lives. And we thought about, well, what would that look like? And we said, well, uh, we enjoy each other's company. We feel that we have different skill sets. We feel that we could work well together. So maybe we want to have a family business. And we also thought about the importance of family in general, particularly in starting our own, that it would be nice to be close to family. And my parents lived in Chicago. I had always been trying to get back to Chicago. Uh, I guess whiskey became my ruby slippers. 
And so we really just decided uh, that uh, we would go with what was most important to us in our hearts, which was working together, being in a city we loved, and being close to family. And as Robert came from three generations of distillers, we had the knowledge to do it. It was really just figuring out how to get it started, uh, particularly in a place uh, in which the laws had not been changed since uh, right after prohibition. There was not a very good infrastructure for craft distilling at that time. In fact, when we started and received our DSP, I believe there were only about 26 DSPs in the entire United States. And so there was a lot uh, for us to navigate, uh, but we felt uh, that we were up for the challenge. So <laughs> we did it. We just left. We moved uh, into my brother's old bedroom in my parents' house uh, so that we could just invest absolutely everything into our business. Uh, because really, you know, there's the saying, you know, how do you make a lot of money in the liquor industry? Start with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Well, that wasn't us. <laughs> we didn't start with a lot of money. We started with a lot of credit cards that we uh, maxed out at 26% uh, after a year of 0% financing. Still don't recommend that approach for anybody, but I will say that the 26% after a year was highly motivating. And, uh, you know, we took that down payment that we were going to have on a home and we invested in a still. And that's sort of how it got started. Uh, it was, it was really exciting uh, to be involved in the industry at such an early point in the craft movement, in part because, you know, it it meant that we got to become incredibly involved on many different levels. I mean. But part of it was all, you know, we needed to figure out how to pay for everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so what we did is what I like to call insourcing. We said, okay, well, what could we do to make more money while we are engaging in this new business? And, uh, you know, we reached out to all the equipment manufacturers abroad. You know, we have the benefit of speaking a number of languages and we said you know can we translate your website can we mm. you know can we do a new website for you um, do you need a manufacturer's representative in america and so little by little um, just because we you know we wanted a discount on a tank or a discount on a still we started to become entrenched in the industry on a side that a lot of people are not, which is sort of the hardware side of things. You know, we got to know all the manufacturers of the equipment. We, in helping them uh, enter into the United States market um, and learning all about what they make and how they make it, we became the representatives uh, here and established a vertical business model. And then we started establishing more of a vertical business model in that, you know, as we started representing these companies and, and as, you know, people started reading about how we, you know, started the first distillery in Chicago since the mid 1800s, uh, we would get these phone calls and people would say, you know, I've been making brandy in my backyard for years. Uh, and I would say, well, don't say that very loudly. It's a federal <laughs> offense. Uh, but they would say, well, how can I go legit? And, you know, we get a number of these calls a week. I mean, it was amazing how large the bootleg community seemed to be um, based on these phone calls. But, uh, you know, we, it got to the point where we were on the phone quite a bit and, and had to just say, come to our workshop. 
So then in addition to representing these companies, we started in uh, educational courses, workshops, we collaborated with the TTB, we became sort of their pet case. Uh, they're sort of, you know, it's not like you want to be teacher's pet when it's the TTB, but, uh, you know, it was, it was an interesting experience because they were recognizing that the industry was changing and that they needed to adjust how they inspect um, and understand small scale distilleries because it really wasn't something that they were doing a lot of. So they sort of used us as a model as to, okay, you know, having equipment that is that you can move around, you know, how that needs to be allowed because, you know, it's not like these small scale distillers had, you know, tons and tons of room. Um, it just was a different kind of operation. And so we did that um, and, and also, you know, being one of these first sort of craft distilleries, we also had to wrestle with the, the legal framework of everything, which was very antiquated. I had to change the laws in Illinois uh, to make it possible to have a craft distillery, to make it possible to do tours and tastings, uh, to make it possible to retail on site. And you know that in itself was an adventure, um, but incredibly important uh, for really creating this wave of craft distilleries across the U.S. because, you know, as the laws got changed in one state, it was easier to make the argument in a different state close by that the laws need to be changed to reflect the nature of the movement and the business environment uh, for, for these new kinds of distilleries. And little by little, laws started getting changed all across the U.S. I mean, it really was like a wave of, you know, legal uh, adjustments uh, for this new industry. So really exciting times in the beginning. But that, I, I, that might not, not have been a nutshell, uh, maybe a coconut shell, <laughs> sort of a large nutshell, but that was sort of the nature of the beginning. <laughs> um. So you spent your, your housing money on, on a distillery. Did you have to bunk out in a distillery or did you be able to find a place to live? Oh, was, it, we were bunking out at my mom's house, my, my parents, yeah, my mom and dad. So I was, I was in my brother's old bedroom and our new baby was in my old bedroom. Oh. So, yeah. One big happy family. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, it was great. It's nice to have the supportive family. Of course, yeah. Um, so, you know, being kind of, you know, a first mover, especially in the city of Chicago since Prohibition, what, what would you say that both the pros and cons of that are? Um, you know, because obviously there are advantages to it, um, makes a great story and get a lot mm -hmm. more attention being the first, but also you're kind of the canary in the coal mine. So tell me like, you know, what that's like. Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> you know, one thing that's true, I, you know, and I, I've lived in a lot of different countries, and, and one thing that I've learned about bureaucracy is that there, it, a lot of, uh, you know, bureaucrats, people in government, they're loath to make exceptions, you know, <laughs> they're, they're loath to say, yes, this is okay, if it isn't specifically written out um, in, in, and, and very explicitly so. And I think when you start something new for which there isn't specific verbiage, you know, legally, or uh, for which, you know, um, it's a, it can be a little gray in certain ways, that it's very difficult. Um, in part because 
you know, nobody wants to do something that then um, is seen as having had a negative consequence. So, and I think this is, is true for a lot of industries, but, uh, you know, when you're, you know, I guess a vanguard and, and, and doing something new, it's important that you follow, you know, certain structures to make people feel confident, you know, if they have to, you know, go forward with something completely new and, and unique. And so I would say, you know, there are, there were a number of challenges. I mean, first there was the statewide challenge of being able to, you know, have a business that could actually function well as a business. Um, you know, we were only in the beginning legally allowed to manufacture alcohol. That was it. And it was very funny because, as I said, there, there were the state issues and then there were the city issues. And it was, there was a lot of confusion at the time because no one really knew what to do with us in certain levels. So with regard to the state, you know, we were only allowed to make it was very clear, but we were working to change that. But with regard to the city, there just had never been a distillery. And in fact, there had not been a distillery since the mid 1800s. So there really weren't any laws about it. There weren't any laws against it. There was just not much. <laughs> and so when it came to when we started, you know, the city knew about us. We, we weren't trying to go fly under the radar at all. In fact, we, we wanted to fly very much in full view. Um, and I reached out to our aldermen when we got started. Um, in fact, I, I will make it aside because it's a very, it's sort of a funny story in that I knew it was important that the city officials accepted what we were doing. And so I reached out to all of the aldermen in Chicago, sort of broken up into uh, aldermanic districts. And I, I wrote about 10 different aldermen and women uh, that um, this was the business that we wanted to start in the city. Would this work in the ward? Uh, you know, and I gave a, gave a lot of information and waited to see if it would be okay with any of these aldermen before we even rented a place or even got started. And two aldermen responded to me, uh, but one was a little faster than the other. And he didn't just respond with an email. He called me on the phone and said, I love what you're doing. This is exactly what we need. New industry, light manufacturing. I want you in my ward. And I've got a guy, I mean, this is very, this is the very Chicago part of the experience. But he's like, and I've got a guy, <laughs> yeah. And he's got a building and you should, you should rent it. And it, it, this would be a good place for you. And so we're like, whoa, city that works. <laughs> this is like, talk about, you know, service. Um, we just hope that we like the space, you know? <laughs> but uh, it, it actually ended up being such a blessing because, you know, not only do we have the support of the alderman, but we, we met his guy, you know, and he did have a place and it was actually fabulous. Um, it was a little bit larger than we thought that we could afford at the time. And, you know, when we were negotiating with him, we said, well, maybe we could put some drywall down and just rent half of it. And he's like, you know what? I won't charge you extra. I'll, I'll, you can have the half price and just take the whole thing. You'll grow into it. And, you know, such support like that, it was really incredible. And when we realized, you know, that we needed to 
change the legal framework in the state, our alderman, so our local political leader, was so uh, important in connecting us and and you know helping me you know reach out and have meetings with our senator our house rep and i ended up you know going to springfield and lobbying and getting the laws changed but i would say it really started with local government and i think that a lot of people get very nervous about government um and you know i i i feel that you know, this experience has made it very clear to me. I mean, the government works for you, you know? It's like, they should be your friend, you know? They should be uh, your partner in all of this. And and I can definitely say, you know, as, as you're being upfront and you're being very clear of what you're doing and what you want to do, that has been my experience. I have, I have had the absolute help and assistance and guidance from uh, government officials um, and, and they've helped make it possible for our business to grow and our business to have the legal framework that it, it ultimately needed to expand um, the way it did. But the but now back to the little funny story about sort of the disconnect um, in the very beginning because no one really knew what to do with us is that normally the city issues all of the liquor licenses and they would come by our door all the time and say you know do, do you have a liquor license you know and and I would say well I, I do I have my liquor license from the state and my liquor license from the federal government and they would say well do you have your liquor license from the city. And I would say, no, because I can't retail alcohol. I can't taste, you know, none of those things were legal at the time. And they were so confused because there wasn't any other, you know, liquor business that didn't need a license from the city. So after we had them come by sort of a second time, I, I, I turned to Robert, I'm like, do you think they're coming by because of, you know, something sort of shady and he's like no <laughs> and I, I mean they weren't but it was sort of amusing that you know they would it was just it was very confusing because they would come by and they knew that we were a liquor establishment but yet we just did not apply you know at the time we apply now you know which is great because the laws got changed and we are allowed to retail alcohol so we do get a license from the city of chicago uh, but in the very beginning it wasn't the case so uh it was funny seeing the growing pains of a new industry now at that point um you know chicago had been established as a pretty good craft beer city did that help you at all like did it at least make it a little easier with government officials since they kind of know what a craft alcohol is or because we're dealing with spirits it was a completely new ball game it was completely different and i would say you know in some respects it it was uh it didn't make it harder but i i would say that it was um there are a lot of uh competing interests at times and you know, when it comes to changing laws in particular, you know, a lot of people get very nervous about holding their own ground. And so when it came time for me to, you know, lobby and try and get the laws changed to make it possible for craft distillers to retail, do tours and tastings, I, I, I will say I didn't have, a, it wasn't a coalition behind me, <laughs> you know, of anybody. Um, 
And I, I think that that's changed now, and we do work very well with, uh, you know, the um, Brewers Association and winemakers. And but in the very early days, it was, um, you know, it was it was a very hard thing to get past. Um, it, you know, and obviously, you know, the wholesalers are 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 very nervous about holding their ground. You know, and I understand that in that. They don't want, and and this is sort of the parlance of of the of their industry. They don't want any cracks in the system, which which I get. You know, I mean, everybody wants to maintain their own interests. I think ultimately, uh, the fact that craft distillers were allowed to make a tiny crack so that we could do tours and tastings and reach out to our consumers and invite people in and establish you know relationships has ultimately benefited you know certainly wholesalers and retailers because we've elevated the entire craft industry and that would not be possible for us if we had to rely on traditional means of advertising because craft brands just can't do that and so you alluded to the fact, uh, you know, you started in 2008, it was the height of the financial crisis. Um, was founding a business during that time, would you say um, that kind of prepared you for the worst? And by the worst, I mean COVID. I mean, would that like... Mm -hmm. Would you say that benefited you a little bit knowing that you've dealt with, you started up in really hard times and then suddenly these very unforeseen hard times kind of came upon us just over a year ago? Absolutely. I, I mean, I would say just in general, there's never a bad time to start a good business. Um, I think that one should always try if, if one wants to. It's uh, That being said, I feel that anyone that starts a small business uh, understands, you know, pivoting, <laughs> or at least if, if their businesses are successful, they certainly understand pivoting. And there are many kinds of pivoting that one has to do. I mean, I had to, you know, recognize the importance of pivoting to become basically a political lobbyist just so that my business could grow, you know? So there are things that you have to do, pivot your own roles, pivot what is important for your business, uh, what you invest your time in, what you invest your money in, um, you know, fig problem solving, I think is, is something that any entrepreneur has to be very good at uh, to succeed. That being said, you know, we certainly were faced with so many obstacles. I would, you know, that I think, you know, a lot of other businesses might not be faced with in, in the onset of, of starting up. You know, if you're starting up a, a coffee shop, there are many, many obstacles, but you're not needing to change the laws to be able to do it, you know, or to, um, you know, make sure that you are cooperating um, to such an extreme level with your city and your local government, and which were all things that were very important for us you know, also in helping the city of Chicago navigate this new industry. I mean, we as consultants, you know, uh, we also were involved in all of their meetings regarding this industry and safety practices and best practices. So these were all things we had to do in addition to trying to start our distilling business in addition to all of the consulting work we were doing with our consulting arm, Cota Distilling Technologies, and raising a child and then having another one and raising another one. So, you know, these, it was, it, there were a lot of things that one had to juggle at the, at the time when we first started. 
And I certainly think that that helped us prepare. I mean, when we, you know, finally got rolling, you know, we originally thought that we would make a lot of brandies and we had to pivot away from that because we could not uh, rely on a good supply of organic Bartlett pears uh, when we started our business, which was a lot later than we had planned. And so they would, you know, our first shipment frozen transit had to process about seven tons of pears in 24 hours. I mean, you, you only end up doing that once. You know, that's not something you're like, gee, I'd like to do this again, you know? So it was, it was intense. And when we said, you know, I think that we're going to need to shift to grain and grain then became our way forward. And, and I think it was a very good idea. So, you know, there were constant shifts. Uh, you know, we, we did not want to do gin in the beginning. And then we took it on as a challenge to develop a gin that we would really like. Um, and then there are all the other pivots and challenges that come with wanting to have an international company. I mean, Koval, from its very beginning, you know, we always wanted to have a distribution model. We're now available in 55 export markets. And I can tell you, every single one of these markets is, is sort of a mini pivot in its own right, in that, you know, they have different regulations. Um, whether they're written or sort of uh, spoken, you know, even within the European Union, we've noticed that there are some, you know, different business environments that we have to, um, you know, consider with regard to our business. Just, you know, take the country of Canada alone. We have about four different sets of labels or five different sets of labels for Canada. So, you know, each province, each country, each everything uh, requires its own sort of business framework. And, and each one of those is a little pivot. I would say with regard to the pandemic, that was the biggest pivot because we completely shifted our entire business. I mean, we stopped making alcohol for consumption entirely for about five months and had to shift to uh, almost a nonprofit type existence uh, in which we were raising money so that we could continue donating hand sanitizer uh, for free. We were doing outreach, reaching out to other members of our community to work with us collaboratively. And we certainly could not have done it alone. Uh, so we worked with different label companies. We worked with bottle companies. We worked with all the breweries. Talk about, you know, coming together with the breweries. This was, this was a real moment for that. I mean, breweries came uh, all over Chicago, brought us their beer, whether they were smaller breweries, such as, you know, um, Metropolitan or, um, you know, even in, in Evanston, um, Temperance, um, you know, and all the breweries up and down Malt Row where Koval lives, uh, they were all helping us. But large breweries too. I mean, Goose Island brought a tanker of beer, you know, uh, distributors brought tankers of beer. I think we distilled a tanker of Bud Light. I mean, it was really unbelievable uh, what we were able to do to uh, work with other members of the community to give back at a time uh, in which it was really needed but you know even just logistics i mean local companies in chicago reached out to help us 
uh, whether they were nonprofits themselves like Beyond Chicago or a law firm such as uh, Adelson, um, they, they did whatever they could to help, you know, whether it was financial or sending trucks. There's a, there's a elevator company called Kone Elevator Company, and they allowed us to have one of their technicians, uh, Tim, once a week or twice a week sometimes with their truck. I mean, this is someone who was supposed to be, you know, fixing elevators, but the elevator company said, you know what, um, he'll come and help you deliver all of the hand sanitizer, you know, with our truck you know, during the week, um, we had so many companies uh, reach out. It was not just a pivot for us, but it was, it was a pivot for everybody in the community that came together. And honestly, it was the most heartwarming and hopeful experience I've ever had. And while liquor in the liquor industry, you know, we're in the celebration industry, we're in the industry of good times. And while this was not a good time, this was the, the, the greatest moment, I think, of, of so many people in liquor and beer um, in the city of Chicago. I mean, it must be difficult, especially in a city like Chicago that is known as a bar town. It's known for its cocktail culture. Um, it's, you know, just known for bars in general and just known for um, its social scene. For all of that to kind of just shut down and, you know, more or less grind to a halt. I mean, that must have been a real shock to Chicago. And you know, and it's you say it for any city, it's true for any city, any town, whatever. But I just feel like you know, especially Chicago's got a really special place in my heart because I've been there so much and I love mm -hmm. the bar scene there. And I haven't, you know, I'm normally there three, four times a year, and I haven't been there since probably um, December of 2019. I mean, I've been through O'Hare, but you know. Lori Lightfoot won't let me downtown, so it's kind of like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, um, so I just, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, um, are we seeing, are things starting to look like a light at the end of the tunnel? Is, is, is the city coming back to life a little bit in that regard, especially now that more people are getting vaccinated and, um, you know, you're hearing more and more different states are starting to open up in various levels. I mean, where do you see that? And do you see it as, um, getting back to the, could it ever get back to the point where it was pre-pandemic? Well, you know, I, I would say even during the pandemic, it was, it was terrible uh, for the bar scene in Chicago. But I, I think that, you know, even the bars there and, um, you know, I, I think of Julia Momose, who, of uh, Bar uh, Kumiko, who became an activist herself and managed to get laws passed, such as Cocktails to Go, for that community. And I, you know, there, there were a lot of really amazing things that happened um, during that time. And, you know, now I think that we are seeing things opening up. I'm hopeful, certainly. <laughs> you know, the city has tried to do a great deal um, to, to help in, in that, you know, they're allowing for, you know, bars or, or places that have more outdoor space to use them. You know, they're, they're trying to work with, uh, you know, bars and, and restaurants to, to help the situation as much as they can. It's, it's, it's still as, it's difficult, but I do see places opening. I think, you know, we're at either 50% capacity um, or um, I think 100 uh, people 
So that's that's a, a big development. I do believe that you know the city's is moving uh, in in a good direction. There's been a decent vaccination rate. Obviously, you know we need to get more people vaccinated so that everyone can uh, be safe. But uh, you know I I'm ho I'm hopeful. I you know whether we can get back to what it was before. You know, I, I mean, there was the the flu pandemic, and it was it was terrible as well. And you know, people, you know, businesses uh, over time they they came back, and and life sort of returned in into some bit of normal. I mean, and during that pandemic, you know, kids were having school outside in the winter. You know, what I mean, people, if you've seen photographs of what it was like at that time, I mean, it was it was it was pretty rough as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for the science, you know, that, that these vaccinations are going to help and that if there are boosters needed. Um, but I, you know, I do feel that we are human beings and human beings are social beings. And we want to be able to come together to celebrate. We want to be able to come together when, when things are, are hard. And, you know, this pandemic has kept us sort of apart, but, but also close, you know, in heart. So I, I think there's, there's no way that we won't, you know, try and creep back um, how, you know, ever safely we can to the lives that, that we want to share, you know, with each other. What do you think some of the biggest lessons that businesses have learned during this time that they're going to be able to apply in the post-pandemic world that are going to make things better and stronger? Well, I think that there are a few lessons. I think one is that uh, that compassion is is also something that makes us all happier and more successful um, in different ways. If we all work together and come together and find ways to help each other, that um, that is that is not just a form of success, but I think it is the road to success. So I would say that that is certainly one. Uh, another one that I think is important is, is preparation and constant innovation. I think that that is, is very important. I think that businesses realized that they had to innovate rapidly if they were going to sustain themselves and grow and change. Um, and that they also needed to have some level of preparedness. I think that, you know, some businesses just were not prepared at all. And, and I can say that, and these were not businesses necessarily in my industry that, that could prepare for a pandemic and, and not being allowed to have customers, you know, by law. Um, but I, I saw, you know, a real um, threat actually to supply chains. I, I, this became very clear to me, you know, that um, sourcing locally is important. Uh, and this is, you know, something that we do in our business, uh, source from local farmers and, and, and things of that nature. But I started seeing the importance of just local sourcing on a much more national scale. Um, when, you know, I'd speak with, you know, nursing home owners, you know, crying on the phone saying that, that, you know, they couldn't get any hand sanitizer and, you know, 
I, I mean, the, the phone calls we fielded during the pandemic uh, were shocking to me. And, you know, and, and others, even ambulance drivers um, that weren't able to find any supply of any of the, the, the important things that they needed to do their jobs, even medical supply companies, you know, reaching out to us. And, and if, all of, if they were all reaching out to me and, and, you know, I make whiskey and gin normally, you know, and, and I feel very happy and, and honored that, that we were able to pivot to fill the need when it was needed. I also feel very nervous now knowing that the supply chains became so strained that they weren't able to find these things locally from those that normally make them. So I think that that is something that maybe should be uh, a wake-up call for people all across the country uh, to have a better infrastructure uh, locally for supplies that might be needed. Yeah, let's hope everybody learns from that. Sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes as a as a country, we tend not to learn from <laughs> our mistakes sometimes, but maybe this time we will. So fingers crossed for that. Um, right. But I think uh, it's good for businesses to have sort of a, an idea of a preparedness plan. You know, what what should our business do if all of a sudden, you know, we cannot rely on our exports, you know, or what should our business be focusing on if uh, business is not doing well nationally or in our community? And I think, you know, thinking in that way and having a strategy uh, will help businesses, you know, in the moment, even if these strategies, you know, are not needed because of an emergency. Just thinking about these things may help a business hone how they can do business. You know, just thinking about, okay, what if I need to grow my business, but I can't rely on the local business? Maybe it will encourage them to think about export, and, and, which they might not have thought about before. And export is a great way to expand one's business. And, and starting to look into that could be a very worthwhile exercise and business strategy um, in the moment. And I think maybe just going through all these scenarios will help businesses come up with ways to just grow and expand their businesses, even if they're not under the crunch or in an emergency situation in which they need to do so. So I think that a lot of businesses were forced to consider these things in an emergency situation. But I think even in, when things are fine, being forced to think about these things can help businesses um, adjust and grow and maybe hone how they do things, uh, maybe you know, work in the moment uh, for what they hope to be doing in the future. You know, whether that's improving their systems, their backend, their, their databases, um, their, their sales structure, their marketing structure. I mean, all of these things can always be re-examined um, and, and one doesn't need to wait for an emergency to do so. After a break, more from Jeff's conversation with Sonnet Bernecker Hart. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. 
Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small, independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. To kick off the final part of the program, Jeff mentioned his appreciation of craft brandy. He asked Sonnet about her thoughts on the future of the category in the United States. Do you see us getting to a point where, um, you know, this, not not just like brandy, not like just cognac style brandies, but brandies, you know, eau de vie, um, unaged brandies, they become sort of a part of the American culinary scene. You know, I would love to see more of it. I mean, I think that we we have that in the United States when it comes, at least to some degree, with cider. I don't think it's even as pronounced as it is in Europe. Um, but, you know, if you travel to Massachusetts, for example, there are so many amazing ciders and, you know, very local ones, you know, that are specific to certain varieties of the apples. And, and just as much as I appreciate that with regard to cider, wouldn't it be great, you know, to try some of these heirloom apples in a brandy? So I do think that there's so much room for this category to grow. That being said, I think that the, some of the obstacles to it are that a lot of people have a bad association with just the word schnapps, you know, which is a shame because, you know, in Europe, it's, it's just, it's an eau de vie and it's actually a very wonderful, high, high quality distillate that is um, unsweetened. <laughs> there's no sugar. Um, but uh, so I think that there's, there's, there's somewhat of an issue there, but I think that in general, um, Americans just have not been used to uh, this category. And some, some of the other obstacles to it are that, um, you know, it's, it's very expensive, you know, and, and these are the kinds of, of products that are perfect for farmer distillers or those that have, you know, their orchard or, you know, that, that grow certain things that, um, they want to turn into eau de vies, but, um, you know, mass producing, for example, you know, we've done a number of them, you know, since Koval started, you know, we've done a pear, Bartlett pear, we've done an apple, we've done a uh, prune, we've done a um, peach that we aged in, um, in, in barrel, whiskey barrels. Um, we, we will be doing another pear. <laughs> There you go. You heard it here first, but uh, and we and we've done a sunchoke, but you know, mass producing these kinds of products, it's it's a very uh, difficult process, you know, with regard to the mashing, with regard to the distilling. If you do it in the old-fashioned way, <clears throat> and what I mean by the old-fashioned way is you're actually mashing the fruit. You know, when we did our peach uh, brandy, you know, we had tons and tons of 
peaches and uh, actual peaches and our entire distillery smelled like a smoothie and it was it was really fun uh, very sticky um, but it was it was a really fun experience and uh, you know it was something that we did you know for a certain period of time and then that was the end of it and then that's what we had you know for for the year um, or the year and the year after that but you know a lot of people you know, who do it, I think in a, in a mass produced way, often use juice. I, I mean, and it can be a great product, but it's, it's not going to be in the same tradition, you know, that you're talking about, which is these, you know, if you travel through Austria or you travel through France or you travel through, you know, Germany, really a lot of these products come from small craft distilleries where they're doing things seasonally. Um, sometimes they're the, the, fruit is grown on their own farms uh, and it's a much more small scale operation. So there, there are issues when you start scaling and that's true for anything, you know? Um, and, but I do think that with the, the proliferation of craft distilleries, you know, now we're, we're up to almost 3000, I believe, you know, in the U S and so we've got more and more and certainly for, I would say those in, in the agricultural communities, this is a great addition to their business um, because just like, you know, having a cidery on, on their, their business as part of their business, you know, having a distillery is great too because, you know, one can take the seconds, you know, or one can take the, you know, the, the fruit that doesn't look perfect, but is not damaged in any way and use that to make um, some amazing distillates. Um, obviously, you know, there's still is a, a, a science to it and an art to it. And, and it's tricky because, you know, it's very important that there can't be any damage, you know, to the fruit, because if you mash you know, this is one of those instances, one bad apple, it'll spoil it all because then you get a mash infection and it's over, you know? So one has to be very careful about mashing fruit um, just because, uh, you know, there can be mass, uh, you know, uh, mash infections. But I would love to see it, it because there's so much flexibility. There's so many options. I mean, you can distill everything from, you know, turnips to various, uh, you know, berries to, um, you know, and berries actually, that's almost more like a gin. So in, in Europe, there's the, there's the, um, the difference between doing a Geist and a brandy and they call, uh, or a Geist and a schnapps and the schnapps would be actually with the, the fruit mash itself. Whereas the, the berries, uh, because it's very hard to mash them, uh, they would do a Geist where they would distill a distillate with the berries and create a kind of, you know, brandy-like um, distillate, but it's almost more like the gin process. But, you know, the, so all of those things are fun and I enjoy them uh, quite a bit. Would love to see more uh, distillers, uh, you know, working with these things. And that's how it will be get, it will get more popular. You know, the more in the craft world, that create brandies, uh, the more it will elevate the category. So I guess we're, we're just counting on our fellow distillers to, to take up a brandy a year, you know, and, and to get people more interested in the category. And, um, you know, shifting to another category, um, since we're going to have you on the panel on the webinar for liqueurs, I want to kind of talk about um, 
you know, your liqueur is sort of the evolution of the kind of craft liqueur category um, and sort of what your approach is to, and, and I, you know, calling it a category is kind of doing it a disservice because there's categories within the category, like every style is very, very unique. So, um, I, you know, I kind of want to talk about how that's developing. It has it been, uh, you know, what role has mixology played in that? And um, are there certain flavors that maybe didn't used to be so approachable to U.S. consumers, but now because, um, you know, we're sort of cultivating a, um, a culture of like uh, cocktail and booze geeks that people are starting to kind of uh, find these things approachable because, you know, 20 years ago, you would think too many people were drinking for net, but now, you know, here we are. Mm -hmm. so, um, so yeah, that's a lot of different questions. So like whichever one of those you want to tackle, go right ahead. Sure. Sure. I think that, you know, the liqueur category is also one that, I, I do think is is uh, growing and it's growing in, in a few different ways. I think that, um, and, and there's a lot of room for growth, certainly. And I think one of the ways that it's been growing is certainly, as you mentioned, sort of Amaro's or sort of more um, bitter type liqueurs in the tradition of a lot of these Italian liqueurs um, have become more popular. And you see people, I mean, when I, was in my early 20s. I mean, that was, it just was not really a thing unless you wanted a shot of Jägermeister, you know, or something like that. They're just, it wasn't very popular. And now I think it's become much more popular. People know a lot of the, the brands and that category has certainly grown and uh, has a lot of appreciation. It, particularly in the bar community too, which I think helps, you know, going somewhere and having a great cocktail with sort of an Amaro in it, people will be like, oh, what is this? And then that really has helped um, grow the category. But I think in another way that I've seen sort of this liqueur category grow and certainly inspired once again by this European aperitivo uh, tradition are these liqueurs that serve as a base for almost a wine cocktail or a sparkling wine cocktail or a champagne cocktail. Um, and I mean, we, we certainly are part of that with our cranberry gin and that's why we created it uh, because we appreciate, you know, our popularity in the Italian market and know that these types of products are, are well loved. And we saw all across Europe, you know, in the summer when when one could go all across Europe. Um, but on all the patios, everybody had a large wine glass with a sparkling, you know, beverage in it with a liqueur as a, as a modifier uh, to the sparkling wine or the sparkling water. And so we wanted to create an, an American answer to that. And, and in particular, a Midwestern answer to that with our cranberries and cranberry gin. Uh, but I think that there's a lot more, um, you know, that there are a lot more opportunities in, in that type of category for liqueurs, not just the liqueur straight by itself, but in that category. And then there's the pure sort of traditional liqueur category, which, you know, in Europe, 
you know, when, when Robert's grandmother who makes amazing liqueurs, you know, they're always, you know, she'd bring them out after a meal and you'd have some liqueurs and they were sort of conversation extenders, you know, uh, which is true also for brandies. So I sort of see liqueurs and brandies in the same kind of um, world. But I think that uh, liqueurs offer so much opportunity for innovation and creativity. Um, you can make liqueurs out of so many amazing berries and fruits and combinations thereof um, that I think that, you know, just and drinking them by themselves, um, you know, they're, they're delicious. You know, it's, it's almost like a mini dessert. So I find that um, just by themselves, I don't know if you know, that has really become on trend yet. It seems that people really use liqueurs to a great extent um, in cocktails or, you know, I hear a lot of people when they use our chrysanthemum honey liqueur or our ginger liqueur, you know, they add it to their teas or they add it to their cocktails or they make a, um, you know, a ginger I've heard people making ginger margaritas, you know, adding our ginger liqueur. So, um, but I personally uh, really appreciate liqueurs just by themselves. And I would say that that for me also goes for Amaro's and, uh, you know, any bitter liqueurs, any, um, you know, I, I love the category. When I travel through Europe, I, I absolutely appreciate the regional nature of them. You know, that you've got Unicum, that's the national drink of Hungary, you know, Beshkarovka, that's the national drink of the Czech Republic, you know, and you, you go to the different places and, you know, Milan, you know, I, I, I you know, it's so, so amazing um, to have the, the Fernebrankas and, and the different varieties thereof. And, it makes me think of those places. And I feel that there's a, an amazing regional opportunity here for liqueurs to reflect particular parts of the United States because different things grow in different places. One can have their own regional character to a liqueur and really it's the sweetness of where you're from. Um, do you see, um... I guess the question is like, where do you see the liqueur category trending? Is it, do you see it potentially going towards more neat consumption? Um, and what do you think the, the flavor trends are going to be like three, 40 years down the road? Mm -hmm. You know, I still see it as being very much uh, about cocktails and, and about spritzers. I, I think that, that that has yet to even be explored to the extent that it could be. Um, and uh, so I do see a lot of growth that way. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, three, four, five years down the road, you know, people are going to need to innovate. And I think that a lot of times, you know, innovation starts in, in your own mind, in your own backyard, in your own community, um, because these are all the treasures that belong to you. You know, no one can tell your own story, your own regional story better than you can. And I think that you know, that is an asset. And I think that, uh, you know, as you have more craft distilleries, that there is going to be more of an interest in what they can represent regionally. And I think that there will be an interest, you know, in people all over the country, you know, especially as we're able to travel again, you know, to go to different parts of, of the country and to visit different craft distilleries and, and to see what 
they have to offer. And I think that the beauty in that will be not finding the same thing everywhere. Although, you know, seeing different people's approaches to, you know, um, something that they know from somewhere else is definitely uh, fun and interesting. But I think, you know, one of the added super fun, unique elements of, of that kind of a journey will be finding something that's, that's truly local and specific to that place, specific to that distillery, specific to that region. You know, and those are the kinds of things that I would want to buy and pick up on my journeys um, places. I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, when I traveled to Massachusetts, boy, did I have a lot of cider, you know, <laughs> like a lot of different, you know, cider uh, makers because they were all different, different apples, different, you know, different stories. Um, and I think that there's a lot of possibility there with uh, liqueurs for sure. All right. So since we're going to wind things down a little bit here, I just wanted to kind of end on, um, and this is a good place to end because we're sort of veering into regionality and a little bit of travel and that sort of thing. So in your travels, um, if you, any, any particular cities, regions, um, or even specific places where that have been some of like the greatest um, drinking experiences you've had, some of the, just from the ritual of it to the the overall experience and that sort of thing. Anything, anywhere in the world that you can recommend? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of uh, in, in my personal experience, I would say a, a real standout was in Japan. You know, we do, as, as you know, we do a lot of consulting and we help set up a distillery uh, for a brewery in Japan, um, the Hitachi Nest, you know, the ones with oh, the, yeah. the, yeah, with the, the owl on the bottles of the beer. Uh, well, they now have a distillery. They also have a sake, um, uh, a sake uh, winery there. And trying their beers was an amazing um, experience because they created a lot of beers with regional flavors. So they had a beer that had that kind of um, plum in it that you find in, in certain Japanese uh, um, dishes. And that was one of the flavors in the beer. And, and we tried a lot of different things that were, um, you know, reflected that region. And I found that that was, it was fascinating to, to experience a region reflected in both beer and in sake, um, the different kinds uh, was fascinating. So, I mean, that certainly is one of them, but I would say also, you know, to your point, you know, going to a small uh, Mostschenke, in Austria, uh, which I would recommend, you know, to anybody or a Hurrigan, but I would say it's, it's really in the Moschenke that you'll find more of the brandies and the liqueurs. And, and a Hurrigan, for those that don't know, it's a wine restaurant, but it's also a winery where they uh, grow their own grapes and they make their own wine. And uh, when you go to the Hurrigan, you have the wine of the year. So it's, it's not any other year, it's you, you just get the fresh wine. And those are great experiences because it's, it's really temporal, it's never gonna be the same, you know? And so you get to have that experience and um, also the distilled spirits that they make uh, from them are, are wonderful. But if you go to a Moschenke, what a Moschenke is in Austria, 
is a place where they make most, which is cider. Um, but it's uh, the definition of cider there sort of expanded to what we experience here. So it's not just apples. In fact, it's primarily pears. So they make cider out of a lot of different kinds of pears that are specific for the manufacturing of cider that we don't even grow a lot of these varieties here. And yet they have an entire menu, always at a Moshenka, of distilled spirits. And they're always regional. So you can go down and, and see what they have. And it's, it's an incredible uh, menu of different flavors and, you know, local traditions even. And uh, they're all made, you know, exactly where you are. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, those are two sort of experiences of really amazing, um, just from a drinking perspective. Uh, that, that I've really enjoyed um, specifically when it comes to eau de vies, uh, in Austria and, and, and that. But, you know, probably the best experience of all is being able to enjoy something that you love to drink and doing it in the company of those you love to be with. And that, that can happen anywhere in the world. That's our program for today. Thanks again to Sonnet Bernecker Hart for joining us. You can learn more about Koval at koval-distillery.com. And you can find Sonnet on Twitter. She's at Sonnet Distills. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening and cheers. <laughs>